This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law joining us via Skype. Uh, Professor Gershon, I hope you were listening to uh, Money Talks. If you weren't, you can listen online. We had Rabbi uh, Debbie Kassoff talk to us a little bit about Hanukkah. So happy Hanukkah to you. Well, thank you, Liz. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, it's a... Always a fun holiday and great time of year uh, with Christmas and Kwanzaa and lots of celebrations and something that we can all celebrate is uh, light in the world. And that's a good thing. Light and chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) Both good things. This morning, we're going to talk about divorce in Mississippi and the, the new laws that have taken effect. We'll learn what they are and we'll find out the steps. Uh, along with our guest, uh, Professor uh, Deborah Bell. Uh, welcome, Professor Bell. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here again. And uh, uh, introduce yourself to our audience a little bit for us. Okay. Um, I am a family law professor. I've been teaching family law for 22 years and following a lot of changes in family law that are just fascinating. And I was asked today to talk about divorce. And this is always something I like to talk about uh, in Mississippi because I think a lot of people aren't aware of how Mississippi differs from other states in our divorce grounds laws. That that is true, and we'll get into uh, a little bit later on when you can file for divorce in Mississippi, where you can when you can file for divorce in other states. Uh, but it is interesting that uh, we are the United States of America, but we are states, and each each one has their own. Uh, peculiarities or their own set of laws that uh, the citizens have to follow. That's true. And family law in particular is one of those areas um, that the federal government has particularly left to the state. So you do see a good bit of variation from state to state. Uh, but you had asked me to introduce myself and I launched <laughs> right at that. I've, uh, I'm a graduate of the University of Mississippi Law School. I practiced in Atlanta for two years after that and then came back at 27 and started teaching. So um, I won't tell you how many years I've been (laughs) teaching altogether, but I've basically spent my entire career here. And I have to say, Debbie's being modest because her impact on people of the state has been amazing. She uh, headed our pro bono initiative, which gave countless hours to uh, people who could not afford legal services. And that initiative has just taken off in in great ways. Uh, She started our, our poverty law clinic here. She literally wrote the book on Mississippi family law that is uh, required reading, honestly, for the judges in the state and for people who practice in the area. So we're very fortunate to have Debbie uh, on the program today. 
Thank you. Well, I feel like we're in good, caring hands for this sensitive topic that uh, we're going to talk about. So if anyone is listening who has a question about divorce, divorce in Mississippi, give us a call. Our number is one 877 MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. And our email is legal terms at mpbonline.org. All right. So take us to take us to class. Take us to school for a little bit before <laughs> we start. Uh, Professor Bell, what uh, give us a little bit of history on divorce. I will. Thank you. Um, and I will get up to the present quickly, but I'm going to start back at 18, in the 1870s. So I think one thing that it's important to remember about divorce is that divorce was not available until, you know, relatively recent history, until the late 1800s, unless either you were the king or you could get a legislature to declare a divorce for you, as in Mississippi, you couldn't get divorced. You could live apart and separated, but you couldn't get divorced. And so in the 1870s, about 150 years ago, um, states in the U.S. began to allow divorce in very limited circumstances, usually when there was some sort of serious fault that affected the marriage, adultery, physical abuse, imprisonment. And that system developed over about 50 years until the early, really 1920s, 1930s. And then that was in place from the 1870s to the 1970s. Um, You could only get divorced if your spouse had committed some great wrong. If you had committed the wrong, you couldn't get divorced because you didn't have a ground for divorce. So it was very limited. Then in the 1970s, post-World War II, with all the changes that followed, all the social upheaval of the 60s, uh, states began to look at something that everyone now knows about, which is no-fault divorce, which meant rather than having to prove fault, um, if someone wanted to get divorced, they could. They could simply prove or allege, really, that their marriage had fallen apart, that it was irretrievably broken, uh, whatever the statutory terms were, and they would get a divorce. Um, So one person could exit a marriage whether the other wanted to or not. So that's the landscape we're in now. In most states, you can get a divorce if you want a divorce. Mississippi and one other state, South Dakota, as far as my research shows, are the only states that have not adopted what I call true no-fault divorce or unilateral divorce. We have a statute called Irreconcilable Differences, but it's really divorce by agreement, which means if both people want to get divorced, they can get divorced without proving fault. But if both don't agree, if one person wants to remain married, we're back in that old fault-based system. So, for example, if a woman wanted to get a divorce, she had an affair with someone, and she wanted to get divorced, but her husband did not want to get divorced, she wouldn't be able to get a divorce because he didn't agree, and under the fault-based system, she didn't have grounds. He had ground, would have grounds, but he, wouldn't, he doesn't want to use them. So we are in a system... Uh, really that unless parties agree to be divorced, um, we and South Dakota are are still under that old fault-based system, which has some very peculiar characteristics like corroboration, which we'll talk about, I think, a little bit later. Uh, But that's, that's something I hear people say, 
oh, I've worked on my marriage. I just, I don't think it's going to work. I think I'm just going to have to get a divorce. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you probably need to talk to a Mississippi divorce lawyer because you may not be able to if your spouse doesn't agree. And, and Debbie, doesn't that increase the cost of getting a divorce by having to prove fault-based grounds? It seems like if, if a party wants, if the marriage is over in one person's mind, then it really ought to be over. So doesn't that, I mean, doesn't that just increase the time and cost? It increases time and cost. Um, so if one person wants the divorce and they have to prove a ground, if there's been no adultery, no imprisonment, no physical abuse, the default ground is something called habitual cruel and inhuman treatment, which means the other has been verbally or emotionally or physically abusive to them in some way. And so you have to prove that. You've got to have witnesses. You've got to call friends and family members. You might hire private investigators. You might do electronic surveillance. You have to do discovery and depositions. And so it does add to the time and to the expense uh, of the action. And, uh, in my mind, diverts attention away from sometimes from dealing with property, custody, alimony, the other pieces of divorce. Whereas if it were a true no-fault system, everyone knows that the divorce is going to go through and they move on to those matters. So, yeah, thank you for pointing that out. All right. Well, this is of interest to our listeners. So we're going to go to Jim in Madison. Thank you for calling in to In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Hi, Jim. Um, I have been divorced and remarried more than once. And um, every time the topic of alimony comes up, I'm reminded of what Rodney Dangerfield said. He was asked if he ever thought about getting remarried, and he said, um, if I ever decide to get married again, I'll just find a woman who hates me and buy her a house. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> well, and, yeah. and uh, yeah, we'll be getting into alimony uh, later, but uh, uh, so that's an expensive concept for you, Jim? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, sometimes those comedians do have pearls of wisdom. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to use that in my class. <laughs> Please do. All right. Thanks, Jim. Well, we're going to go ahead and take our first break. Uh, you're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Our topic today is divorce. When do you think most divorces occur? I found a study, and we'll tell you after the break. But if you have a question about the laws concerning divorce, we'd love for you to be a part of our show. It's 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.
Welcome back to In Legal Terms. We realize that not everybody has a chance to listen to our whole show live. So if you miss any of this program, you can go back and listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash in legal terms. That's one way. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app. That's the second way, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill, and I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law via Skype with our guest, Professor Debbie Bell. And this morning, we're talking about divorce. Um, We'll get to alimony, but if you're curious about child custody, I encourage you to listen to our November 13th broadcast, which you can find at mpbonline.org or the MPB public media app. And when do most divorces occur? The finding comes from the University of Washington sociologists who analyzed divorce filings in the state of Washington between 2001 and 2015. And the data revealed that divorce filings consistently peaked in March and August, and they thought that was because um, getting through the holiday season as a family and maybe getting through the summer as a family was important, and that uh, March and August were the had the most filings. What do you think about that, Professor Bell? That's interesting. I had heard the same thing about the Christmas season, the holiday season, but I had not heard that about the summer. Uh, but that does make sense that you know people just don't want. To in the first of December to announce to their children before the holidays that they're <laughs> getting a divorce. So that, that would not, not surprise. That's an interesting statistic. Thank you. All right, uh, we have a caller that uh, wants to participate in our show. You're listening Great. to In Legal Terms. Go ahead, please. Are you talking to me? Yes, I am. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, is it possible to revisit a a legal settlement, a no-fault divorce? I've, I was uh, involved with a woman, and we got divorced, and it's come to light in later uh, years later that she was part of a criminal conspiracy to defraud me. So um, that's an interesting question, and the as a little background, I think of a divorce action when there are children involved as involving five pieces. There's the grant of the divorce, custody of children, then three financial pieces, division of property, alimony, and child support. And typically, division of property is final. Once you've signed that property settlement agreement, that's the end, unless you appeal it. But once the appeal period is done, you don't go back and modify property division as compared to alimony and child support, which you might. However, um, there are some circumstances when a property division settlement can be set aside. Um, this is actually a fairly recent development in, in Mississippi. Um, in, I think, 2013, our Supreme Court held that a property division can be set aside for fraud if the action is brought within a reasonable period of time and if the fraud included a substantial misrepresentation about the party's assets. So, I, I, you know, I, I can't address your situation in particular, but, uh, you know, just as general information, there are some circumstances under which a property division can be revisited for fraud. 
Thank you very much. All right. Thank you for being part of our show. And if anyone else would like to uh, share their wisdom or ask us a question about the divorce laws of Mississippi, we'd love for you to participate with us. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. We have another call. Uh, Who we do? So, uh, Joe from Mobile, thanks for being part of our show. Go ahead. Hello, Joe. Hang on just a second. Do we have Joe from Mobile? Well, while we're waiting for Joe from Mobile, um, we talked at the beginning of the show, uh, Professor uh, Professor Bell, that... um, there are you if both people agree to a divorce you can get a divorce but then um, there are ways that an individual could sue for divorce uh why don't you rattle those off for us pretty quick oh good let me see if i can (laughs) so uh, the ones that are most commonly used are adultery desertion which means your spouse left you without your consent for a period of over a year Habitual, cruel, and inhuman treatment, which we would think of as physical abuse or emotional um, or verbal abuse. And increasingly, um, we're seeing habitual drug use, drug addiction used. Um, Habitual drunkenness is a ground. Uh, Most of the other grounds are are pretty rarely used. Um, Bigamy too close degrees of kinship, um, mental illness uh, that's required institutionalization for a period of time, pregnancy of the wife by another at the time of the marriage without the husband's knowledge, which is the longest labeled ground. Uh, But those five that I mentioned first are the the ones that are most commonly used. And interestingly, uh, two years ago, our legislature added another ground or a subset of ground uh, changing the ground substantially for the first time really since the 1930s. Um, and just a, some background on this, there is a push almost every year in the legislature to move us to a no-fault state. And one of the arguments that's commonly given is that our current system really disadvantages victims of domestic violence because rather than being able to just go in, file, get a no-fault divorce, and then deal with other matters, they have to find a lawyer, prove grounds. They have to have a corroborating witness, which means they can't just come in and testify that, that their spouse abused them. They have to bring in a witness, which is sometimes very difficult to do um, in, in domestic violence. So that's always the argument that is made that we should go to a no-fault system. Well, two years ago, the legislature heard and was moved by that argument, but rather than moving us to a no-fault system, they created a new subset of habitual, cruel, and inhuman treatment called spousal domestic abuse. And it describes domestic abuse in the exact same language that the domestic violence protection order does. So for conduct that you could get a protection order for, you can get a divorce for. And and people have asked me, well, we already had physical abuse as a ground under 
um, habitual cruel and inhuman treatment, what's the difference? And there are two important ones in the statute. One is that it does away with the need for corroborating evidence, which I think is probably one of the most helpful things they could have done for the victims of domestic violence. The other is because it tracks the language of the domestic violence protection order statute, it it appears, we're not sure yet because we don't have cases on it yet, but it appears that if you have been able to get a domestic violence protection order, um, you should also be able to get a divorce. And so you've got that proof that may assist you in the, the trial. There's one thing the legislature didn't do that I hope will get added back in. Um, and that is there is a defense called, this sounds so esoteric, but condemnation. And for example, in adultery, if someone's spouse commits adultery, they go to marriage counseling, they go to their priest, they take that spouse back and forgive them. Five years later, you can't say, oh, I think I want a divorce because you committed adultery five years ago because under Mississippi law, you have condoned that behavior. So does that make sense? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so typically... One doesn't condone abuse, but we have a line of cases in Mississippi that says that if a victim of violence leaves the home and then comes back by returning to the home, they have condoned that prior violence and they lose their grounds for divorce. And I I personally think that is a terrible, terrible rule because that means if a woman goes to a shelter is concerned about her family, the safety of her children, and comes back, she's lost her ground for divorce. Um, And so I hope at some point um, within the spousal domestic abuse ground, that defense of condemnation will be removed along with the requirement of corroboration. And do I understand that because it's because it's now a separate ground, it doesn't have to be habitual. It could be one time. Yes. And thank you. That that was the other another important thing is one instance of domestic violence that would be sufficient to get you a protection order is now sufficient to get the divorce. And that is in contrast to prior cases where we've had a few cases where courts said one incident wasn't sufficient. So I think this is a wonderful development. I applaud our legislature for taking this step. Um, so I, I think it's a very helpful thing to have added to the, the grounds that we have. All right. Well, we have an interested caller, so we're going to go to Charles in North Mississippi to participate in the show. Thanks for calling in legal terms, Charles. Go ahead. Uh, uh, greetings to everyone. Hello. Uh, Great. My question is, being that Mississippi has some laws that can uh, prevent you from getting a divorce, in a timely manner, but you, uh, Mississippi is also bordered by other states. Uh, could a person go and file for a divorce in another state and still reside in Mississippi, uh, even if the other party do not want a divorce? That is such a good question, um, and that's uh, thinking for looking for creative solutions there. Um, and the answer is no, not unless they tend to move permanently. The reason for that is that jurisdiction for divorce is based on residence or domicile, and in the law, that's defined as an intent to remain somewhere indefinitely. So, if somebody 
say they, they live in on the Gulf Coast and they say, well, I'm just going to go live in New Orleans for six months. I'm going to file for divorce in Louisiana. Then I'll move back to Mississippi. That would be held invalid because it would be held that Louisiana did not have jurisdiction. So you can get a divorce in another state, but to do that, you've just got to make, and I've seen people do this. You've got to make the decision. I'm just going to go live in another state. I'm going to leave my job here. Uh, I'm going to move and live in another state, uh, but not just temporarily. Thank you for that question. That, that's a great question. Okay, thank you. In the movie, uh, what is it, The Women, uh, a couple of them moved to Reno and lived for six weeks so they could file in, in Nevada. Is that, is that a thing? Can you do that? Do you know? Is that for just six weeks anymore? No, there was there was a time period when you could move to other states. This was this was pre no fault divorce, but now the the jurisdictional laws are pretty similar in all states. So no, it's a, a quickie divorce by moving to another state is is not the option that it apparently once was decades ago, or or at least in the movies. All right, let's uh, take one more call before we go to break. Uh, Robert in Gulfport, thanks for calling in to in legal terms. Uh, go ahead. Hi, folks. Good morning to you all. And um, I am living in a little town south of Hattiesburg called Sin. <laughs> in other words, me, I'm 59 years old, a few weeks short of 59 years old. And uh, my my girlfriend, wife, if you will, had been together for 15 years. Initially, it was better for us from a tax standpoint because she had two uh, children from a previous marriage that were uh, uh, 13 and 15. So we were able to take advantage of the uh, whatever it is your lawyers there would know. Uh, it's a tax credit and um, so we didn't get married. And then after a while, we thought if it's not broke, don't fix it. And so, like I said, we're not we're not young children. We're not kids. We're not teenagers. We're not in our early twenties. Is there any benefit to us getting married from a tax standpoint? Well. Thank you for that question, and I am going to defer that to Professor Gershon, who has taught both tax and family law. Well, and I would I would even more look at this more from a wills and estates point of view, because uh, if you don't have a will that is names your uh, your lover, your uh, your girlfriend, uh, then you die without a will. She will not get the benefits uh, from your estate. Uh, you want to look at Social Security benefits as well and, and some of the, the survivor benefits that she would be entitled to uh, that she will not get if she's not your spouse. So those are some considerations. There are reasons why there are reasons why uh, same sex couples fought for mar- rights to get married was to protect those kinds of things. Also, health care benefits. I don't know that that's a concern, but uh, if you want to include uh, your partner on your health care benefits, you, you have to you have to be married in, in Mississippi. So you know, all of those things are reasons why people look at marriage as a, as a benefit. Uh, you got to look at your own circumstance. Obviously, with, if you write a will, you could certainly uh, leave uh, anyone uh, in, in the will uh, as, as a beneficiary. So those are just things you want to think about. Right. 
All right. Thank you. Thank you you guys for the uh, information. But you know what? Either way, I love her. Well, good for you. All right. We're going to take our next break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about uh, maybe how someone gets a copy of their divorce decree. Uh, If you want to participate in our show, we would love for you to give us a call. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-672. 7464. You can also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert joining us via Skype with our guest, Professor Deborah Bell, and today we're talking about divorce. And according to the Mississippi State Department of Health, which was curious to me that that's where I found this information, uh, Vital Records does not maintain divorce records. A five-year search of divorce indexes is available from January 1st, 1926 to June 30th, 1938, and for January 1st, 1942 to present for a fee of $17. A five-year search is available to locate the county where the divorce was granted, the book, and the page number in the Chancery Clerk's Office where it was recorded. The Chancery Clerk's Office will need to be contacted directly in order to obtain a certified copy of the divorce decree. Note, although Required by law, all divorce records are not on file. With the Office of Vital Records, contact the chancery clerk in the county the divorce was granted. Okay. Um, uh, so if uh, to get a uh, divorce decree, a uh, divorce decree is a paperwork. What are all, uh, Professor Bell, tell us some of the, the paperwork steps in getting a divorce. Um, actually, there's not much to it, and, and most people should have a copy of their divorce decree provided to them at the time of the divorce. But if they've lost that, um, they go to the chancery court, or in some cases, they can call the chancery court, tell them they need a copy of their divorce decree, and they'll send it to them. Uh, they may have to pay a, 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 a charge for the copies, but it's, it's pretty simple and straightforward. Um, I, I'm like you. I'm a little bit surprised that that was not something that that vital records offices chose to maintain records of. But they are easily obtainable from the chancery court where the, the divorce occurred. But um, just as a, an aside to people, I, I would advise them 
be sure to keep copies of all those those records and papers. Um, just you need a complete file in your home. So um, I, I know you may not want to look at it again, but once you get that file, do hold on to it. All right. So that that's an important piece of paper. If someone wanted to file for divorce, what where do they where does the first office they go to? Um, well, I think it, this may be a little bit beyond the scope of our time here, um, but the the filing takes place in the chancery court. Uh, so the chancery clerk's office is the place that one would go to file, and the initial pleading is, is just a complaint for divorce. Um, but there are jurisdictional and venue rules, um, so it's not necessarily the chancery court in the county in which you live. Um, so in Mississippi, the, the, the appropriate chancery court depends on whether it's an ID divorce or it's a fault-based divorce um, and may depend on where you lived at the time the marriage ended. In multi-state cases, um, you can file for divorce in the state in which you reside in the proper county, but then there may be issues about where is the appropriate place to seek custody of a child. So um, I would say before anyone just starts filing for divorce, they should contact an attorney to be sure they understand what's the appropriate venue, um, both county and state, for the filing. Yeah, I would say then that the first office you should go to is a lawyer's <laughs> right. office. Well said. <laughs> That's right. You you want to be able to get the best outcome uh, for you uh, and uh, for your situation. Well, we do have two callers on the line. First, we're going to go to Roger in Florence. Roger, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Well, as your as your expert, there you know. I used to think I was an expert as I sat on the bench as a chancery judge. Now I know better, but but they continue to keep up with the law. But here's some principles that I think need to be stated. The man who called in with this classic question, which you know, I hate because our tax laws is begun to ruin our lives. But but his question was what advantages, and he used the word tax advantages that might be to marriage. Now, of course, the professors have avoided getting beyond that question, um, but I want to go a little bit beyond it. In the event of a marriage, then you acquire, both parties acquire some other rights, some of which have been mentioned today, as a married person. And if the marriage does not work out, then you have a set of equal, uh, set of rights, supposedly equal, if you go to a chancery judge and you explain the facts and the law applies, then somebody is going to prevail over a dispute. So don't forget, if you're contemplating the question of whether to marry your girlfriend or not, don't just think about tax advantages to you or to her or him, but think about the, the legal advantages of being a married person in litigation for divorce. It's already been mentioned about the estate matters, and that's that's so important. And I'm not even going to mention what at least used to be considered an important moral, moral consideration and, and stigma and all those other things. But speaking legally only, there are a lot of advantages to a party to be married if the marriage goes on the rocks. Thank you. All right, Roger. 
We appreciate you being here. Thank you for adding that. And and you are so right. I, I sometimes tell my class that the greatest rights that you gain by marrying as between the parties are sometimes those that that arise at the time that the marriage ends. So that's such a good point. All right. We have another call. It's uh, Redding is calling from Jackson. We appreciate you participating in in legal terms. Go ahead. Redding, are you there? Well, we'll uh, see about getting him uh, back on the line. We touched a a little bit about uh, alimony at the beginning of uh, the show. And also, you mentioned uh, very quickly kind of five points of a divorce when uh, the person was asking about uh, changing the settlement. Uh, Can you repeat those for us? Sure. So the the five pieces of a divorce in my mind are the grant of the divorce, custody of the children, child support um, for the the custodial parent and to the custodial parent for the child. And then the two pieces that are the financial pieces between the spouses are property division, which is also called equitable distribution and alimony. And until Oh, the 1980s, the 1990s in Mississippi, um, in states that were not community property states, there really was no property division. Whoever held title just got what they held title to. And the way that we sorted out financial rights between the spouses was through alimony. Then in the 80s, as no-fault divorce became, uh, divorce became more and more prevalent, courts saw that particularly women and children were really struggling. They developed the concept of marital property so that anything acquired during the marriage could be divided between the spouses, regardless of who held title. And at that point, alimony became sort of a backup system. So courts divide property first, and then after property division, if one of the spouses is still left at a financial disadvantage, courts can, but aren't required to, award alimony. So now, modern alimony, the first question is, is there a financial disparity after property division? If the answer is yes, then the courts look at the length of the marriage, how great the disparity is, who is at fault, the health of the parties, and based on all those factors, they then decide whether or not to award alimony. And there are three different types they can award. There's permanent alimony, which continues until one of the parties dies or the recipient remarries. There's lump sum alimony, which is a just a, a set amount that is due and owing and is not modifiable. And there's rehabilitative alimony, which is sort of like permanent alimony, but it's for a limited period of time. So it's very fact-based. It's very hard to predict unless you know a particular judge and what that particular judge is likely to do. Um, And there are a wide range of ways to structure it. So I I would say that of all these five pieces, alimony is the one that is in the greatest state of transition and uncertainty. 
All right. We have a couple of calls holding, but we also have an email. Um, It's from Kelly. My spouse and I are separated and have been for close to two years. We have lived in separate homes for close to two years. Our daughter has lived with me during this time. I have yet to receive any financial support for her. What rights do I or she have regarding obtaining child support? So, Kelly, just a reminder that I I can't give specific legal advice, but I can tell you generally about child support. So when um, when parents separate and the child is living with one of them, the 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 non-custodial parent, the parent who's not living with the child, can be ordered to pay child support according to the Mississippi Child Support Guidelines, whether or not they are divorced. That child support can be ordered if they're getting divorced, if they're just remaining separated, or if they've never been married. If they're getting divorced, it can be ordered on a temporary basis. So one can file for divorce and then be awarded temporary support pending the final outcome. Um, and that's that's a right that every parent of a child has to seek support from the parent uh, with whom the child is not living. It's based on a formula in Mississippi. Um, judges can vary from that formula, but often follow it. For one child, that's 14% of the person's adjusted gross income. All right. Well, I think that uh, that's a, f- a fair answer that Kelly can take to uh, apply to their own situation. We uh, need our callers to hang on. We're going to take our last break of the show. Uh, I, I like movies, and even even in uh, bad situations, um, sometimes movies can make you feel better or at least uh, take your mind off of things. And I was quite surprised that there were so many divorce movies. So we'll tell you what Ranker lists as some of the top uh, liked divorce movies. And we'll when we come back, We'll continue our discussion about divorce with our guest, Professor Deborah Bell. Um, This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. for being part of In Legal Terms today. If you miss any of our programs, remember there's three ways you can listen to the whole show. Number one, you can go to the website, mpbonline.org slash in legal terms. 
Number two is the MPB Public Media app. That's where you can listen to all of our local shows. And the third one is a podcast on whatever podcast platform you have on your smartphone or on your computer. You can listen to us. Just search for In Legal Terms. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, who's joining us via Skype with our guest, Professor Debbie Bell. And we've had uh, a couple of calls who have been holding. We appreciate them. Let's go to Rob in Vicksburg. Rob, thanks for being part of In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you. Okay. Okay. I have a question about property and probate, alternatives to probate in Mississippi. Can Can you answer that? Professor Gershon, Professor Bell. Up. Oh, uh, Rob, how can, can you hear us? Yes, now we can. Okay. okay. Well, we can't answer Rob's specific question about his situation. We can give general uh, general information is, is all we can do. Yeah, I, I'm interested only in a general uh, solution. I, I am divorced, and I own a home after divorce. And uh, you know, all by myself, and I have children, and I was told that uh, to avoid probate, I have to either uh, you know, make my children joint owners or put my home in a trust. Is there any other alternative? I don't like either of those two alternatives. So, is there any other alternative available in Mississippi? Well, I, I, you know, I can understand uh, the idea that people want to avoid probate, but probate itself is just a process of changing title, and it's just a process of uh, 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 making sure that the will is valid. Uh, so it's, for, you know, when it comes to a personal residence, it's not that onerous. Uh, but I do agree that a way to avoid probate would be to put the, the, the house into trust, and you would have the right to live in it for the rest of your life, and then it would pass to your children upon death. And the trust itself is a is an entity that doesn't die, so therefore you don't have to go through probate to change that title. Uh, so that is probably, I think, the most effective way. To, to deal with that issue. If you make your children joint owners, uh, then they actually have rights to the property currently. So anyway, I hope that answers your question. Right. And one of the things about uh, joint ownership is that if you make somebody a, a shared owner, they can sever, they can sell their share of that property if they're a current owner. So that, that's not always a good solution. Yeah, I, I have, you know, I have looked in detail into both probate and what is involved. I would look at, uh, you know, the trust situation in great detail and also, you know, the disadvantage of uh, making children joint owners while you are living. Uh, so somebody told me some states may have another alternative, and I was wondering if Mississippi has any other alternatives to these three. Not that I'm aware of, no. No, I'm not aware of another one. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. We're going to get to our last call of the day. It's Lee from Madison. Lee, thanks for being a part of In Legal Terms today. Go ahead. Thank you very much. Uh, my ex-spouse disappeared about 10, 12 years ago, and we didn't have any children. Uh, she kind of embezzled my company and ran off. So uh, right now I'm going to do my will. 
and I want to protect things so that she can't come back out of the blue and try to claim anything. So we don't. We didn't have joint property. We didn't have kids. Uh, so uh, we had one time when she was working for a legal firm. They drew up the divorce decree, but then then they fired her and wouldn't let me know where I could reach her. So I just don't, don't want to be caught out of the blue with her trying to claim anything that I have. Professor Gershon, we've talked about uh, wills. What is a way an individual can uh, make sure well, someone else doesn't inherit I, anything? Liz, I think this actually may be more of a divorce question. I'm going to defer to, yes. to Debbie. Because- so, I mean, it, it sounds like you're asking if you remain married to her, what rights might she have upon your death? And as a, a legal spouse, she would have a right to claim it's what's called a, a child's share of your estate. The one sure way to deal with that would be to get a divorce. And it is possible to divorce someone who has um, disappeared. I, you, there are several grounds that would be available. So, I mean, the, the one sure way um, to, to deal with that would be to go ahead and to get a divorce. Uh, because it's very difficult um, to to remove a spouse from from any of their statutory rights. And together in ten or twelve years, is there any way well, to do a quick divorce? Maybe sure before the uh, diversion. Um, I want to be sure I'm understanding your question. The, uh, if you're married to someone who has left, if again, I can't give specific advice to you, but um, if someone's spouse leaves them and they're gone for more than a year, one of the possible grounds for divorce is desertion. Um, and you don't have to, you can, for divorce grounds, this, this may take up more time than we have, Liz. Um, in order to deal with financial aspects of divorce, you have to have personal service of process. That's not true of the grant of divorce. So it is possible to get a grant of divorce if you don't know where the person is and you've done your best to find them by publication. So yes, it, it is possible to get a divorce against someone who has left and someone for whose location you don't currently know. Okay, so I need to do a publication uh, I would say you need to see an attorney and talk to them about divorce grounds. But the the uh, one option would be to do a divorce based on de- desertion and to do process through service of process through publication. Oh, this is all that ends all of our time, Jay um, or Lee. Thank you so much for calling in. Oh, Professor Gerson, we didn't get to our 2018 uh, tax implications. We'll uh, have to everyone will just need to go see an attorney to find out what's the best policy for you uh, in regards to divorce. Uh, We appreciate uh, Professor uh, Debbie Bell. Thank you for being on our show today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Oh, well, good. Uh, We uh, appreciate Java Chapman and Jay White for helping us out. And I'm Liz Gill. So our next show is Tuesday's Southern Remedy, Relatively Speaking. And we hope that you listen to In Legal Terms next Tuesday at 10 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.